Chapter Seven of Giants on the Earth by Captain S. P. Meek. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, The Deluge. Few of the sons of God and none of the Nephthalim, save Damis, could match the brute strength of the viceroy. As Damis rushed, Glavor sidestepped and caught the Nephthalim's arm in a bone-crushing grasp. Damis made no effort to break the grip, but with his free hand he gripped the wrist of Glavor's crippled arm. With a quick effort he twisted it, and the viceroy gave a shriek of pain as the newly knit bone gave way and his arm fell, dangling and useless. Damis caught his sound arm in a powerful grip and twisted slowly on his wrist. Gradually Glavor's fingers relaxed and Damis's arm was free. His hand shot up and gripped Glavor about the throat just in time to shut off the cry for help which was forming on his thick lips. The two giants strove silently for mastery in the struggle which meant life for the victor and death for the vanquished. The expression in Damis's eyes was one of confident mastery, but the face of the Jovian showed something that was strangely akin to fear. Even when he was whole, Glavor had found that his strength was no match for the power that lay in Damis's graceful limbs. With one of the Viceroy's arms useless, the issue was a foregone conclusion. Glavor's face gradually grew purple, and his eyes started out of their sockets. His tongue protruded horribly from his open jaws. He grew weaker until it was only Damis's grip which kept him from falling to the ground. Then Damis broke his silence and spoke slowly and distinctly into the dying Viceroy's ears. "'I was loyal to you, Glavor,' he said, "'despite your brutality and sensuality which sickened me, until you strove to add to your already crowded seraglio the maiden whom I had chosen.' As a Nephthalim you thought I had no right which you needed respect, and I would tamely submit to whatever you chose to do. You forgot that in my veins run the best blood of earth and the proudest blood of Jupiter. Hortan was a Mildash of Jupiter, a rank to which you could never aspire. I restricted your efforts and proved to you a thing which I long have known, that man to man I am your superior. Even then you might have won back my loyalty, had I not learned how my father and my mother came to their death. It has always been given out that they went to Jupiter on a summons from Tubane, but I know the truth. They died under the knife of a cowardly assassin, under your knife, Glavor. Then it was that I swore that it would be my hand that would strike you down. When you raised your hand against me, you were viceroy of the earth and your power was secure, for the conspiracy against you had no hope of success. What is the situation now? You are beleaguered in your palace, holding only the ground your few feeble weapons cover. Even this ground you hold only by the sufferance of the earthmen. Listen to what I say, for I wish your last moments to be bitter ones. 
On the hill east of the city sit two weapons of a type and a power unknown to both Earth and Jupiter. They are the deadly black ray weapons of Mars. Ah, you tremble. You have good cause. One of them is trained on this palace, while the other searches the heavens, ready to blast into powder the fleet of Tubane when it appears. And who, think you, brought this about, Glavor? It was I, Damus the Nephthalim, the half-breed bastard whom you despised. My only regret is that I cannot send you to the twilight of the gods as you sent that other arch-traitor Habener. Are your last moments pleasant, Glavor? I am increasing the pressure slowly, so that you will have time to think, to think of the earthmen you have given to sacrifice and torture, to think of your ruler Hortan dying under your knife, to think of the doom which is about to overcome your race. Think, Glavor, for your time for thought is short. As he finished, Damis thrust back on the viceroy's chin with a sudden effort. There was a dull crack as Glavor's neck broke, and Damis gently lowered the inert bulk to the floor. He felt a touch on his arm as he straightened up. He whirled like a cat, and Laura shrank back with a frightened gesture. Damis opened his arms, and in an instant the earth girl was folded in them. "'Is my father safe?' was her first question. "'Safer by far than we are,' exclaimed Damis with a sudden pang of anxiety. He glanced at the time-recording device on the wall. Three quarters of an hour had passed since he had first entered the viceregal palace. If the estimates of Tubane's arrival which he had heard were correct, the Jovian fleet should be almost overhead. "'Come!' he cried to Laura. We have no time to lose if we escape before the palace and all in it are destroyed. Where did Havener land his ship? In the yard west of the palace, she replied. Pray that it is still there, said Damis. We can reach it through the path by which I entered this room. Come quickly. With Laura at his heels, he passed through the rent in the tapestry and entered the secret passage through the walls. The way twisted and turned interminably, but finally he paused before a door. Before opening it he slid back a panel which opened a peephole and looked out. "'The ship is there,' he whispered in a voice of relief. "'There is only one guard over it that I can see. Why didn't I think to bring Glavor's weapons? I'll have to try to catch him by surprise. When I open the door, run straight for the spaceship as though you were trying to escape from me.' Don't try to dodge the guard. Keep right on for the ship. As soon as I overpower the guard, get in the ship and hold your hand on the starting lever. When I get on board, throw in the power at a low rate. We don't want to rise rapidly enough to get out of easy control. Do you understand? Yes, Damis, she whispered. He watched until a sudden shout drew the attention of the sentry momentarily away from the ship he was guarding. A confused sound of cheering came from the palace, and the sentry looked toward the western heavens. A moment of gazing, and he raised his voice in a raucous shout of joy. Instantly Damis swung open the door. Laura sped out like a frightened deer, with Damis in close pursuit. 
the attention of the sentry was fixed on some distant object in the sky, and he did not see the oncoming pair until Laura was only a few inches from him. The sound of her footsteps attracted his attention, and he glanced down at her. An expression of surprise came over his heavy features, and he reached for a weapon. His gesture was never finished, for Damis's fist caught him under the ear, and he dropped in his tracks. Damis looked in the direction in which the sentry had been staring, and a cry broke from his lips. "'The fleet of Tubane!' he cried. A thousand yards in the air and a scant five miles to the west was a clump of half a dozen Jovian space flyers. Massed behind them were a hundred more. They were approaching with tremendous velocity. Damis gave a mighty bound and leaped through the airlock of the ship. Hardly had he cleared the door than Laura pulled down the starting lever. The ship flew up from the ground. Hardly had it left its ways than a momentary flash came from the hill east of the palace. The air grew black around them, and a cold as of interstellar space permeated their very bones. In an instant the ship had flashed up into the sun above the zone of influence of the Martian weapon. The shouting from the palace was suddenly stilled. Damis looked down but nothing could be seen save a pall of intense blackness over the ground where the building stood. "'The port motor, Laura!' cried Damis. The Jovian fleet was approaching so rapidly that a collision with the nearest flyer seemed inevitable. There was a roar from the air as Laura threw in the port blast with its maximum power. Damis hurled against the side of the ship. From the hill where the Martian weapons had been placed came a second flash of light, and a beam of jetty blackness shot through the air. An edge of it brushed the ship for an instant, and Laura stiffened. A terrible cold bit through the flyer, and the side where the Martian ray had touched crumpled into powder. The ship sped on, and the friction of the air and the bright rays of the sun dissipated the extreme cold. Through the terrific storm which was raging, the black ray stabbed again and again. Back and forth it played, and ship after ship of the Jovians was momentarily caught in the beam. When the beam passed on, there was nothing left of the ship save a cloud of dust which the terrific wind dissipated in all directions. Damis glanced at the earth below him. It seemed to be flying past the ship at a velocity which he could hardly comprehend. He made his way against the pressure of the movement to the control levers and strove to check the speed. As the earth ceased to revolve beneath him, the wind rose to a terrible force. "'What has happened, Damis?' shrieked Laura in his ear. "'I don't know,' he shouted in reply. "'I am trying to keep away from the neighborhood of the palace for a while, uh, until the Jovian fleet is destroyed.' Tonas and your father might not be able to tell us from one of Tubane's ships, and they might turn the ray on us. He bent over the control levers of the ship, but they refused to obey his touch. The stern motor still roared, with enough force to keep them three thousand feet above the ground, but none of the side motors responded to the controls. The ship was helpless and was tossed about, a plaything for the terrific wind which howled through the heavens. Damis watched the ground below them. 
Look, Laura! he cried. They swept over the site of the palace. The black ray was no longer playing on it, but the whole palace glistened like crystal. What is it? she asked. Frost! he shouted. The Martian weapon did its work well. Everything in the palace is frozen. In the name of Tubane! The Jovian ejaculation had burst from his lips unbidden at the sight which met his gaze. Racing over the land was a solid wall of water, hundreds of feet high, moving with enormous speed. On toward the palace it swept. Below they could see the earthmen on the hill striving to fly, but there was no place of safety. The oncoming wall of water was higher by a hundred feet than the top of the hill, and it was the highest bit of land for many miles. Nearer and nearer came the water, until with a roar and a crash which they could plainly hear in the crippled spaceship, it swept over the hill and the palace, burying them under a hundred feet of brine. "'Father!' cried Laura in anguish. Damis made his way across the ship and folded her in his arms. He was chosen as one of the lives needed to buy the freedom of the earth, he murmured to her. It is hard, for I loved him as a father, but it was the end which he would have chosen. He died at the head of his followers, battling for freedom. What happened, Damis? asked Laura an hour later, as she looked down on the seething tumult of water under them. As nearly as I can figure out, the Jovian fleet approached the palace from the west at a low elevation. In order to destroy them we could not use the Martian weapon normally to the earth's surface as they commanded us, but were forced to use it tangentially. The enormous counter-reaction to the stream of force of almost incredible intensity which shot at Tubane's flyers had to be absorbed in some way. The weapon could not take it up as it was anchored to the center of gravity of the earth. As a result, the force was translated into one of increased rotation. The earth must be spinning on its axis at fully twice its former rate. Both the air and the water had too much inertia to follow the accelerated motion of the land, so the wind blew a gale and the oceans left their beds and swept over the land. Everything must have been swept to destruction before this flood. And all our labor and sacrifice has been useless, cried Laura. We have freed a world at the cost of the lives of its inhabitants. The world is not lost, sweetheart, he cried as he clasped her to him. The floods will not have overwhelmed the mountains, and some men and animals will have escaped. The waters will subside in a few weeks, as they will take up the new rotation of the earth. By his will we are spared for the labor of building a new world. As soon as the land again appears above the waters, we will land and assemble those who have been spared. The fleet of Jupiter has been destroyed, and we need fear no fresh attack for ages, perhaps never. Unhampered, we will build a new world and try to avoid the mistakes of the old one. Look, Damis, exclaimed Laura in a hushed tone. From the spray and mist below them leaped a living bridge of colored light. Above the sun it arced its way into the heavens in the direction in which they knew Mars lay. 
"'It is his promise,' whispered Damis reverently, "'that henceforth the planets will live in peace and amity, "'and that never more will the Jovians be allowed to invade us.'" End of Chapter 7 End of Giants on the Earth by Captain S. P. Meek The story recorded by Phil Chenevere